Good afternoon, Wilkinson. I'm back. This afternoon, I am with Dwayne Ratliff. He is the author of Dancing to the Lyrics. And say hi, Dwayne. Hello, everyone. Okay, you got a book here. It's a really thick book. <laughs> yeah, it, is. it definitely is. You brought me a copy, and I'll read it after this. So talk about the book. What's it about, and why did you write it? It's about being a young African-American gay kid in Baltimore in the 1960s and about what I saw. I wrote it for many reasons, but I'll start with the 1960 part first and go backwards. Everything I saw in the news about what happened in 1968 after the riots in like 120 cities wasn't what I saw. So I wanted to write about what I saw, what it was like, especially in this time with the war in Ukraine, what it was like to be a child and see hundreds of soldiers pour into your school, order you out by bayonet point and watching it, just observing it. I mean, you know, that doesn't happen in America to most people, but it did to me and many others. And I really wanted to explain that. So you said the riots in 68, right? Yeah. Talk about the what were the riots for? Not everybody listening to this okay. is going to know. 1968, Martin Luther King was killed. And then African-Americans in 122 cities just lost it because as one of my school teachers said at the time, it's like they killed our best effort. So now they have to see our worst behavior. And wow. it really was kind of that. The ironic thing is he was killed on my mother's birthday. I remember watching the TV. She had just blown out the candles for her birthday and Walter Cronkite came on and said Martin Luther King had been killed. And me being a young kid, I, for a while, I actually thought, oh my God, did my mother blow out his life? Because it happened at the same time. Right. And then I, I went to school and then like on that Monday, I mean, the city just went crazy. I, literally the city was burning. You could see it everywhere, but we still went to school that Monday and Spiro Agnew was the governor at that time. And he ordered us out of school. And one of the things I did, I mean, I'm thinking to me, white people were either only on TV or they were foreigners and that we were the real Americans. So when I saw that many white soldiers with a bayonet, I said, America has been invaded. We have to do something. I'm a child. So, right. so he ordered who out of the schools all the kids they were going to use the school they thought they didn't ever did but they thought they were going to use the school gymnasium to keep looters or anybody else who was in trouble so spiro agnew closed the schools then the one of the commanders of the national guard came in and orders it out of the school wow and when i i had to cross a park to get home and there were probably about maybe 200 soldiers there with they had bayonets on them and i wasn't really afraid so much and I was kind of entrepreneurial in a sense because it was before lunch. And I said, I went to a couple kids. If you give me your lunch money, I will go confront those soldiers. So <laughs> I went up to him. I started yelling. I spit in the, in the grass and told him like to go back to Serbia. You know, my little young mind thinking it's someplace like Serbia or, you know, some far country. Because suburbia to me was like a right. foreign country. Now, how old were you? Nine. Wow. I just turned nine. How do they react to that? Surprisingly, some laughed. Some of them were actually really kind of ashamed because, you know, they had joined the military, you know. I mean, they joined the National Guard for many reasons, you know. But a lot of them just didn't want to go to Vietnam. And next thing they know, here they are having to confront their own citizens. So, right. But I and will kicking little kids out of their school. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say this. The National Guard was way better than the 
Baltimore police. They were much more respectful. I mean, I almost feel ashamed today that I confronted them, but I was a young kid. I, they were in a bad position, but they were much more respectful than the police ever had been in East Baltimore. Had the police been a problem before that, do you know? Oh, always. You know, I mean, seriously, uh, years later, this isn't in a book, but I had an aunt. She had her church money and an envelope and the, something happened and the police came by and they saw the church money and they just took the church money because she couldn't do anything about it. And, you know, I'm not saying they all were like that. And I don't know what it's like now, but it definitely was like that. Hmm. You know, who's going to believe a black woman going into church saying this police officer who makes more money than she ever dreamed of took her money and right. they did it because they knew that. Because they could do it. Just because they could. Right. So you mentioned earlier that what you saw and what was reported was different. What's the discrepancy? Well, the discrepancy is they, it was sort of like, there was this thing. It's like all of a sudden African-Americans just went crazy for no good reason. It's like Martin Luther King was really trying to do a peaceful method. And when they killed the peaceful method, uh, people just snapped. And the other thing that the discrepancy were, was that we were burning down our own neighborhoods. No, we didn't own any of those businesses. It still wasn't right to burn those people down. I'm not justifying that at all. But we didn't own those businesses. And the reality is Lyndon Johnson used the fear of the riots, uh, e even with, with Congress and the Senate. He said, look at Washington. It hasn't burned this much since 1812. And that's when the... Fair house. I think it was the fair housing. It was 1968. Yes. Yeah. So it was all, there was a whole bunch of stuff and it wasn't going to pass, but after that it passed and it was because of the riot. It was, it was a dead bill. The fear of having to fight Asians in South Vietnam and fight African-Americans in their own country was just kind of like too much for them. They passed it not because of good heart. They passed it out of fear. I'm not saying that's the best way to get, but as an African-American, I really didn't care how we got it. So what was the point of that? So you're saying they were trying to give your community something in, in that well, It was bill? almost like an impeasement. Okay. So here, so giving you a carrot kind of a thing. Yeah, it was. I mean, part of that, uh, the other part of the bill was it was they made an anti-riot act. Of course, everybody's not for riots, but in some ways it wasn't a riot. One of the things that happened in Baltimore, people were trying to stop it and the white businesses were selling to a black community. They, they re really didn't understand. They said, why don't you close your stores for a day of mourning and do all of that? Because we're really trying to control this. And they just completely ignored it. Matter of fact, at the, at the time, Nancy Pelosi's brother was mayor of Baltimore. He had just become mayor and he, not slamming him. He, he was new. He just people just misread the whole situation. Hmm. from from start to beginning i mean from beginning to start or finish sorry yeah. <laughs> i'm all I'm beginning all yeah whatever it's from one way to the other yeah. somehow <laughs> okay all right so why'd you write the book um the other reason is uh, i have nieces and nephews i don't have any children myself and i realize i'm the one who knows a lot of family history and things like just because I was very curious about talking it so i kind of wrote it for them too like when i'm dead and gone they can find out how they ended up in Connecticut. Cause that's where most of my immediate family is now. It's like, they have no concept of where we come from. And so when, and some of them have read it and they were like, Oh my God, we, we never knew it was like this. And it's funny because me and my sisters, we weren't hiding it, but we just really didn't tell them a lot. I think you kind of protect kids 
and then when they're old enough to realize or be able to absorb it, you've kind of forgotten about it. So you don't have your real name in the book. Yes. And my, <laughs> oh my God, my sisters and some other relatives, like I said, I wrote this book, you know, the names have been changed to protect the, the guilty and some of them severely guilty. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but also one of the other reasons I wrote the book too, is I was in special ed and I always viewed, and I, I overcame that and I became a voracious reader, but I was still always afraid of my writing. I really was. You know, I just, I could spit out anything they said of, that I t- took in and I spit it out. But like I said, I always thought I was a consumer of words. Then I realized, no, I'm a good storyteller. And my husband actually said, you're an open book. Why don't you write one? So that was the other reason I wrote it. In a way to kind of overcome a little bit of my fear of writing, because I was like, oh my God, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. I mean, I was in a boiler room for like two years trying to learn to read. And here I am trying to write a book. Who are you kidding, Dwayne? So people are not going to understand the boiler room concept here. So exp- uh, explain that. So when we moved from Baltimore, I mean, the schools there were really, really bad. I mean, they spent pennies on the dollar for black kids. Uh, and I wasn't, I didn't have a learning disability. I was just a late bloomer, like so many kids are. So then we moved to Connecticut and there was a big discrepancy. You know, in the fourth grade, kids could read and write. I could write my name. And that was pretty much it. Um, I have a funny story to tell. There was this one girl, her name was Martha Smythe. She was a really smart girl. The teachers, the pet, they all, they loved her. And I was like, just struggling. So she, and Martha didn't like me. So the teacher would say, all right, Martha, today it's your turn. You're going to pick the kids and you're going to pick a word and a child to come to the board and spell it. Oh my God, that evil heifer <laughs> called me. <laughs> she would always pick you, Oh right? <laughs> my God. She, no, but this time was really bad. She picked me and she goes, I want you to write the word, word hippopotamus. To this day, if anybody asks me to spell it, I go into shock. <laughs> I don't know that I could spell that <laughs> yeah, today. <laughs> I mean, in the fourth grade. But this is when I at least realized if I wasn't intelligent, I was at least cunning. I actually took the chalk, pressed it really hard against the chalk so it make that screeching noise. Right. Until I got to the first P and then the teacher finally said, oh, I'm sick of you, Dwayne. Sit down. <laughs> and so I did that. <laughs> so I was, wow. Nice diversion. Yeah. It was interesting because I was actually starting to figure out ways to hide that I couldn't read or write. And then one day, my fifth grade teacher started reading Charlotte's Web to us at the end of the day. I was so mad that I couldn't, I had to wait for her to read. And I was afraid she was never going to finish it by the end. Um, Then I went to summer school after that. And I literally blossomed. I seriously, I went from not not reading at all. I mean, I read Hamlet, you know, the portrait, or actually it's called the picture of Dorian Gray. I started reading Hamlet, all these things that other kids my age were not reading. I just... And it was Charlotte's Web and the ability that I had to wait for someone to read to me that annoyed me so much that that's, that was the catalyst cool. to make me read and okay, learn. Okay, but you didn't, you didn't tell about the boiler room. Oh, We'd, the boiler room. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to bring you back to the boiler so room. So the boiler room, when we first got- Go the, to the boiler room, okay? Yeah, that was, that's where it started. So because we were special ed kids, this is way before today where they, you have to have a special room for 
a school. Back in the day, they just put you as far away from everybody else. So then the teacher, the teacher, the special ed kid would come to each class that there was a special ed kid, draw you out of the class and you have to make the long walk down this wooden steps into this boiler room. It was hot as hell in there. And you, you weren't going to learn anything in there. You're already hot. You're trying to stay hydrated. <laughs> I can't even believe they even put us there. I and I just imagine what I mean. It's bad enough for the kids, but what was the teacher thinking? I have no clue. I mean, I, they get a boiler room. That was the only room available. <laughs> I mean, jeez, because it, it was way. And the funny thing is that makes it even funny. I went back just recently to visit it, and I'm thinking, oh my god, now that school is a jail. Literally, yeah, it's a jail. It's a jail. Yeah. They converted into a jail. I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> oh wait, that's in Connecticut. Yeah, a matter of fact, it's it, 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 the name of the school was North School, and now it's the uh, Torrington Police Department. Really? Yeah. And so I'm, it's a I, police department with some cells in it. Yeah, and, stuff and I'm like wondering, that. did they turn that boiler room into like solitary confinement? <laughs> it's like, what is it now? <laughs> wow. Is it still as hot as it was before? Wow. <laughs> So you told why you wrote the book, some of the reasons, but what is the book about? Um, the book is about a gay African-American child moving from a rural town in Ohio. Um, my mother moves there with a stepfather and all the ex- things you experience from going from rural America to a fairly safe America to Baltimore where East Baltimore was rough, rough. I mean, it was a very great place to live in some ways. Um, my, my husband even told me to write something in a book that I wasn't going to because for a couple of years, we grew up between the Maryland State Penitentiary and a junkyard. And my husband said, are you kidding? You're going to leave that out? I said, people would love <laughs> to just make that up. And, not, and you're going to leave that out. So that's what made the book a little bit longer because I started writing about it and I'm going like, oh my God, this was really interesting what it was like to grow up next to a penitentiary. Uh, because the prisoners would sometimes hit baseballs over and, you know, all the the straight boys would be running for the balls and I would hang back because I really didn't want a baseball. I never liked baseball. Any other sports I was cool with. So one day I'm walking by the wall of the penitentiary and one of the guards has a baseball and he was nice enough to like drop it for me. So I can get it. And literally when he dropped it to me, he may as well have like shot the partridge out of the pear tree. Cause I just like shunned and like, Oh, you know, are there any Barbies up there? It's like, really? I don't want baseball. Really? <laughs> no. So was it literally next door to you I would, or, or like a block away? No, or no, no, no. We, my bedroom looked on the wall. It was probably 30 feet. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. But no more than 30 feet. And the other side was a junkyard? Yeah, the, behind our backyard was a junkyard. Huh. And it, it's so funny because when you were a kid, you don't, I don't know about other people. I didn't know we were poor because everybody else around us was like this. You didn't think about it. Only when I got older and I mentioned it, people were like, no, you're making this up. I said, no, no this is where we lived. <laughs> I mean, we even found a dead body in there. In where? In the junkyard. Someone had just dumped them off. Seriously? Yeah. Seriously. So you were the one to find it? Yeah, me and my sisters. And then you reported it? Well, we told our mother and we said, somebody's not breathing in the junk. I mean, I'm not, I shouldn't be laughing because it was awful. But uh, I think 
it's really weird. The reason, one of the reasons that there was so much violence and all of this going around, it almost reminds me of a story that I heard about someone who lived, a child who lived in London during the Blitz, why bombs are, are falling and they still believed in Santa Claus. Right. You know, that he was going to come down the chimney. And it was the same for us. I mean, you know, you see people, it was pretty brutal, but, you know, our worries were, is well, is someone going to rob Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny? You know, is he, right. are they going to be able to bring our presents? It was a totally different. So did your mother let it go or did she call and report it? Oh, no, she reported it. Oh, she did. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was a, it was a very colorful time period and just, um, and people, there were some people who kind of knew I was a gay child. They would make reference to like sugar being in your blood. Um, like in the book, my father, who is really kind of a jerk, but one of the things he was not was homophobic. He really was not that. I really didn't, uh, surprisingly, because you think of an African-American community as being really homophobic. I personally didn't run into a lot of it, maybe because uh, as the story I told you before we got on, I was like the neighborhood bully and sissy, sissy because I was tough enough and then I can play with dolls and, you know, no <laughs> one's going to mess with me. So is that your stepfather you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. a stepfather. Is he still around? Yes. Um, every, uh, my mother, my two sisters and my father are really the only ones left in the book who are still alive. Cause I was nine years old. Right. By the time the book ends. And do you get along with them or no? No. I get along with one of my sisters who are really, really great. The others were, you know, there's always casualties in a place like that. And just emotionally and psychologically, they are casualties. So what was it like being sissy, bully, gay boy? <laughs> um, I <laughs> was black. really, well, one of the things that is interesting about a book, and I'm not putting down other people's book, but there's a lot of books about gay men writing about, or LGP, LGBTQ people writing about, being bullied. I really wasn't. I mean, let's put it this way. People tried. Not that I was physically strong enough to push them off. I was one of these kids at a very early age. It was a mind over matter. I don't mind and you don't matter. I really didn't I really didn't care what other people thought of me. Uh, my husband just found out recently because he's met people who knew me when I was nine and 10. And he said, no, he was always like this. It wasn't something he got in adulthood. He never <laughs> cared what people thought. And you have to be like that. Because when I moved to an all-white school, and I, I don't mean this as an insult to white people, but I remember uh, the white kids were teasing me about how big my nose was. And instead of going home crying and being upset that, oh, my nose is big, I would just look at him. And once again, this is a different time period. I don't think this now, but I would turn to him and say, well, that's why you guys can't win any gold medals in sports and Olympics. That's why we're winning them all, because you don't have enough oxygen getting to your muscles to really do anything, because your nose, you said, your teeny noses. I said, you guys can't breathe. That's why you can't do anything. Oh, my God. I was, so I wasn't the one who would go home and like, oh, they just tease me. No, no, um, no. I was not that kid. Tell a story about the Barbie and the two boys. Oh, God. This is actually not in the book. When we moved to Connecticut, my fam family was able to finally really afford getting a doll for my sisters. Of course, I wanted to play with it right away. And it wasn't Barbie. It was kind of knockoff Barbie. <laughs> As I was telling <laughs> you earlier. Generic Barbie, Yeah, right? generic, generic Barbie. Barbie. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't have, you know, her dream house. She had Section 8 housing. It was, she was ghetto Barbie, you know. <laughs> So I was doing her hair and I sprayed some grand finale on it to make sure the hair stuck good in these two. Wait, you got to explain what grand finale is. Oh, it's a hairspray that 
women in the South, but I think all over the country, when they got their hair teased. Like the just big in, hair thing. Yeah, then yeah. it froze in place. <laughs> it's just like, you know, nothing short of a tornado was going to move that hair. It, okay. You know, your clothes would be disheveled, but your hair would still look great. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, it was called Grand Finale, I'm pretty sure. So you Grand finale did the Barbie, fake Barbie. Yeah, and so these boys came by and called me. Unfortunately, they called me faggot and sissy. And I put the doll down very gently, and I proceeded to beat them like I bought and paid for them. And they went home crying. And I picked up the doll, finished doing the clothes. And my father <laughs> was looking at the window, and he didn't know what to do because now I'm like the neighborhood bully and sissy. Really, like gender fluid and all these things that are going on now. I'm glad we have terminology for this. But I was that way before. And not just me, many other people were. You know, we just didn't have a name for it. I I thought it was normal to play with Barbies and didn't beat the crap out of someone. Now, I thought that was normal. <laughs> what are some other highlights in the book? Um, I would say my first visit to Connecticut. What I thought going from a really segregated black area to a white area and the title of that chapter in the book is called Bird Bass and Doorbells because you go to Connecticut, which is very affluent. Although this town was not, it was kind of like working class, but even working class was had more wealth than we did. And the thing that amazed me the most is like these people had bird baths and doorbells. And that's the title of the book. It's like Bird Baths and Doorbells. I was like, oh my God, White people have baths for their birds and we barely have a shower in our house. It's like almost out of spite. I wanted to push one over. It's like, well, you got a bath and we don't. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's just the conflict, uh, the contrast of it. It was like, wow. whoa. And um, just running into like seeing all that wealth. And I will also say for me, it was an eye-opening experience for me because it was the beginning of I realized how ignorant I was, not in the pejorative sense, like, oh, you're ignorant. I mean, I just didn't know things. And going to Connecticut threw that right up in your face because you get to see what you don't know in a real textural way. You could, you could feel it. And But the other thing is, after two or three weeks of being there, I also realized how ignorant they were. They had no concept of other cultures. They had no concept... It was almost like they lived in a black and white world, although it was wealthier than mine, the one I come from, and I lived in Technicolor. And the other thing that was interesting about that, Baltimore was a place that news happened to you. Connecticut was a place you watched it on TV. It was a very, very different experience. And there were other things like, going back to the Martin Luther King thing, there was just a whole series of things that was were happening. And like right after that incident, Bobby Kennedy was killed. And I remember that really well because we actually stood along the train tracks as the train is coming from New York to go to Arlington, well, Washington, and then on to Arlington. So we're standing there. And after the riots, people, black and white, are lining the, uh, the tracks, you know, because everyone's kind of weary and we're trying to like trying to figure each other out. I mean, white people were on the north side and we were on the south side of the track, but there was still some mixing. And the thing I remember the most, and most people don't realize this, and I thought this was an odd thing. When there's a tunnel we were waiting for, there's a tunnel where the train came from New York City. Well, I'm still a child, so I don't know what it is, but there's a cemetery above the tunnel. There's a 
it's Greenmont Cemetery, and John Wilkes Booth is buried in that cemetery. And I had, I think two weeks before, I had put a penny on the grave because there's a superstition in Baltimore, at least in that neighborhood, you put a penny on the grave. And there was talk of that that was a way to make sure that John Booth, John Wilkes Booth didn't get out of his grave. And I put that on there to make sure that no one else would be killed after Martin Luther King. And I thought, well, it didn't work because Bobby Kennedy was killed. But literally, the train came almost right under his grave. And if you didn't live there, you wouldn't realize that. Wow. So it was like a tunnel and above it was literally literally the cemetery. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because the irony of that, uh, I think Maryland is one of the, uh, that cemetery had more Confederate generals and soldiers buried in it than any city anywhere in the North. And the irony of of it, it was a sea of Confederate soldiers surrounded by black life because it was surrounded by a black neighborhood. Of course, that didn't dawn on me until later on. I I put that into the book from from a future perspective. I did not know that as a child. That's another story. Um, well, I like I like stories. Well, the, <laughs> the other thing is when we ran into, I remember um, the store. The stores were burning and we were out of food because of the riot. And this is back in Baltimore now. Yeah, 1968. It was like a couple days. It was a couple days after. And we're out of food. And my mother forgot there was a curfew. There was a curfew from, I believe, four in the afternoon to seven in the morning, something like that. And my mother forgot. And she took me to go to the store and we ran because we needed some bread or something to eat. And this soldier stopped us with a bayonet. He had the bayonet in the face. What are you doing now? And he was kind of surprised to see a mother and his child. And we, my mother said, we're hungry. We're going to the store. And she said, he, and he was so sympathetic. I almost felt bad for him because he was so apologetic. He was almost like he was hiding his gun because he didn't want to be doing this for, like I said earlier. And my mother had a strange conversation with him about like, you know, he didn't want to be here either. He, you know, he... You know, he wanted to be in the suburbs with his barbecue. And it was just how embarrassed he was almost to even be there. And the funny thing is, he did tell us, he said, but I will give you news tomorrow that Department of Agriculture is bringing in some trucks for some food to bring in. And one of the senators was literally half a block from our house. He said, you'll be the first ones there in the morning and you'll be able to get food. And that that happened? Yeah, it did happen. And of course, everybody who knows me, no one on the radio does. I am... A food person. So I woke my mother up first thing in the morning and we were the first ones in line. I made sure I made sure of that. And also how we stopped believing in Santa Claus. My father accidentally took me up and I saw all the toys wrapped. So I knew there was no Santa Claus. So, of course, I'm not a sympathetic brother. I let my sisters know there's no Santa Claus, which was really not a bad thing for us. Okay. So we decided there's no middleman. So now we can start pestering our parents. So I, we weren't really disappointed. But the funniest thing is we had a cat <laughs> that got under the tree and accidentally scratched over one of my mother's presents. So my sister decided, oh, you know what? This is a good idea. She grabbed the cat, put her under her arm, put her finger on the paws to make the cat extend its paws and got all her presents and opened her presents. And my mother was like, mm, yeah, yeah. My sister, I'm, I'll say her name in the book. It's, isn't that funny, Peanut? It's a that cat. Not only did it go to school to learn to read, it also went to the gym to exercise, so it can lift all these heavy presents and only open your presents. Wow! <laughs> so we were really uh, we were feral kids. So we we're it was just an interesting time because 
I mean, you would never let your kids, like going back to the junkyard, I walked by that prison and going to school. Um, my mother took me to school the first day and then not after, after that, you didn't. Also, another time we found somebody shot in the head, just leaning on the ground. So he was changing his tire and someone shot him in the head and there he was frozen and we just went to school. It was, a, but it wasn't just violence. There were really characters that were really funny. Um, and I think this is a funny story. Like my bird dies and one of the first Catholic, black Catholic church in the United States was in Baltimore because it's a very Catholic city. And this was after the ride. And I'm a little kid and I want my bird to go to heaven. I absolutely have to have my bird go to heaven. So I wanted a real funeral. I had a nickel, which was rare for me to have money. I think it was probably leftover money from me taking it from the kids from lunch when I challenged the uh, the National Guard. So they were closing the black church down, but there was a white person there who was there until they whatever. And I was afraid to go talk to a white person, but I needed to go. My I needed to have my bird go to heaven. So I knocked on the door. And this white priest answers it. And he was really, really nice. And I said, you know, I want to want a funeral for my bird. I want to make sure he goes to heaven. And I said, I want you to speak that God language, which is Latin. I didn't know what it was. Matter of fact, the, um, the title of that chapter is called God's Mother Tongue, because I didn't want him to speak what I heard in my church. I wanted Latin. Sorry. Right. I wanted Latin. Right. And um, so he was really nice about it. So he said he would do it. And I said, here's the nickel. He said, no, I don't want your nickel. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want my bird to have any cheap funeral. I want you to take the nickel. Okay. <laughs> so then that was, the, that was the, probably the second white person that I ever talked to. And then I did something that black people would chew white people out for doing. I said, um, can I touch your hair? Because I was going to get the most for my nickel. So he <laughs> bent down. Of course, it didn't feel like it. And he had bureau cream or whatever that cream was. So it was kind of greasy. Like bro cream. I yeah. 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 And so... But the funny thing is, I remember I got mad at myself because years later when I had an afro. People this, wanted to touch it. So there's no, this white kid wanted to touch my hair. And I go to him, oh, don't touch our hair. Black hair, hair products are poisonous to white kids. And he snatched his hand. And, went, and I'm thinking, <laughs> God, I'm really kind of intolerant after this nice priest let me touch right. his hair. And the bird did have a nice funeral. And uh, we were so into it that I remember... Because the pigeons lived, it was a pigeon actually, they lived on uh, row houses up above. So we were thinking, how are we going to get his relatives could come to the funeral? This the is pigeons' such a, relatives? Yeah, we did. <laughs> so we took caraway seeds and spread it all over the grave so they would come down and go to the funeral. <laughs> oh, brother. Oh, no, yeah, we were... Very, very creative. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't read or write, but when it came to... <laughs> Every day, other things. Right. We were pretty cool. All right. So do you have any uh, words for my listeners? Yeah, I actually do. I think whether you publish or not, and it could take you, because this book took me six years, whether it takes you two years or six years, there's somebody, I don't care how in, uninteresting you think your life is, that's not true. Everyone out there has an interesting life. You just don't think it because you're too busy living it. And if you if you have kids or grandkids and you know, you don't want those stories to fade away, write them down because they do disappear. So write a book. Yep. Whether or not you publish it, just write yeah, it. Yeah, I wasn't even going to publish this, actually. Huh. But my husband said, Dwayne, it's actually good. And I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, I would be the first one to tell you. And some of my other friends, they were saying, a matter of fact, they actually said to me, I can't believe you wrote this. 
I'm like, well, that's a compliment, I think. It's so good. I can't believe you wrote it. <laughs> right. Oh, well. Well, I appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Thank you. It was great having you. You're fun. Take care.